you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn there to Acts chapter 2. I know it says on the handout, Matthew chapter 5. That was my mistake. I didn't uh, update Pastor Joel in the text. But if you please stand as you turn to Acts chapter 2, we will be reading from verses 40 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. As you're turning there, let us come before the Lord and ask for his blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. O Lord God Almighty, we again are thankful for the opportunity to open thy word, to have it read and explained to us. O God, by thy spirit, please open our minds, open our hearts, open our ears, and equip our feet and our hands to execute what we read in it, the commandments we see, to lay hold of the promises that are extended to us, O God. Lord God, please speak even through this fallible man to our hearts, O Lord, and let all error be left to the side, and let us cling by faith in Christ to what is true and what is good. Lord God, we ask for thy blessing and thy help now. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people." And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Dear congregation, this is the word of the Lord. God. You may be seated. Indeed. As a new year begins, as we get started with the new year, it's helpful to look over all the things that have accumulated in, in you and your family's life over the past year. And then see what unnecessary things can be shed, can be cut off, can be gotten rid of. This can include cleaning out closets, garages, which mine needs to be cleaned out desperately, and junk drawers. But it can also include taking a fresh look at habits, routines, systems, and workflows. And trimming off all that's unnecessary or unhelpful. This accumulation of unnecessary items and unhelpful steps doesn't just happen in our garages or in our personal habits and routines. It can also happen in our churches. The church sometimes gets distracted with all of the programs, politics, polemics, and party planning and forgets to keep the main thing the main thing. It's helpful for the church, I think, from time to time, to take inventory, to look over its ecclesiastical, its liturgical, and its fellowship habits, and then get back to the basics, or at least to review the basics. 
to be most effective in both her inward and her outward-facing ministries, the church must be laser-focused on the things which God has clearly called her to do. One good way to learn or to review what things God has given the church to do is to read the narratives of the early church in her infancy. If you are following along in the Robert Murray McShane reading plan, then last Tuesday, January 2nd, you read Acts chapter 2 in secret, meaning in private. In Acts chapter 2, we trace the origins of the Christian church. She begins as about 120 disciples, gathered together in the upper room of a house in Jerusalem, upon whom the Holy Spirit is poured out from heaven, like tongues of fire, after which St. Peter preaches his famous sermon on the day of Pentecost, leading to the baptism of about 3,000 souls. Some of these souls were diaspora Jews who had come to celebrate Passover and the Feast of Weeks in Jerusalem. And after this, the church jumped to about 3,120 disciples. At the end of Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 to 47, which we just read, Luke describes the state of the infant church, which Calvin draws out from her what he calls her distinguishing marks. If we are careful to listen, there is much for us to learn about what God would have us to be uh, most concerned about, most focused on, most dutiful in as the church, and if we are faithful in his work that he's given us to do, he will bless the labor of our hands just as he blessed the labor of their hands here in Acts chapter 2. Today, much study is given to the early church or the primitive church, and rightfully so. For not only is it our own family history, the, the narratives of the early church, that's our family history, but also if we don't know where we have been as the church, then we can't know where we are going, or at least where we are supposed to be going. However, there are two extremes or two errors which we need to be careful to avoid in studying the church in her infancy. First, C.S. Lewis, to borrow from him, chronological snobbery. We have nothing to learn from the church of almost 2,000 years ago. This church didn't even have the Nicene Creed yet, and do you not know that we are the inheritors of the Westminster Confession? Have we not entirely outgrown our swaddling cloths and bibs that we had in our infancy? Indeed, we are called to maturity, but we are also warned against despising the day of small things, Zechariah 4.10. They may not have read Machen, Manton, and Calvin, as I'm sure everyone here has, but the apostles daily walked in their midst. The tender cooings and the lullabies of a mother are not to be despised, and they are to be praised just as much as the firm and serious way that a father teaches that same child to discharge and clean a firearm when he is older. The second error that we want to avoid is what I have called nostalgic regression. This is the common error of the restorationist churches and even some in the emergent church movement. 
This kind of attitude looks at the early church and says, we need to strip off everything that the church has done in the past 2,000 years. Just get rid of it. And we need to try to think and to act exactly as the Christians did in Acts chapter 2. If we really want to be biblical New Testament Christians, then this is where we go. We have to imitate them exactly and get rid of everything else. But this is no more profitable than it is possible, meaning it's neither profitable nor is it possible. Despite the adults and the teens that are supposedly on TikTok identifying as babies, they are no more babies than a man dressed as a taco is a taco. We are called to go on to maturity in Hebrews 6.1. This requires us to put away childish things, the Apostle Paul says, and no longer think or understand as a child, 1 Corinthians 13.11. In other words, we can't pretend, we can't sit here and pretend that the past 2,000 years of church maturation has not occurred, nor should we despise all that God has taught her in this time. We must act our age, and this requires learning from the past just as much as it does looking to the present and the future and applying God's word to both. The church grows to be a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ by submitting to the teaching of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers that God has given her. Ephesians 4, 11-13. So, while neither despising her lowly beginnings nor imitating her in her infancy, we have much to learn from the state of the church in Acts chapter 2. What then were some of the marks of the primitive church in her state of infancy? The first one we can look at is that she was evangelical. We pick up our text in verse 40 as Luke is summating the rest of what Peter said. What comes before in, in, in chapter 2 is Peter's sermon and then we have this summary of the rest of what he said In verse 40, much of Peter's sermon is recorded in Acts chapter 2, but not all of it. And Luke summates uh, the apostles' continued exhortations to the Jews as, Be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved from this perverse generation. Peter had proclaimed the gospel to the gathered multitude in verses 34 to 36, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, he's quoting from Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This, right here, is the early apostolic gospel in a nutshell. Jesus, whom you crucified, is both Lord and Christ. The multitudes, in verse 37, are then cut to the heart. And they ask the apostles, what are they supposed to do about this uh, startling reality? In verse 38, Peter responds saying, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This then results in about 3,000 souls, 3,000 people being baptized and added to the church, verse 41. 
Then in chapter 3, Peter and John tell the man lame in his feet from birth who sat begging at the, the, the temple at the gate called Beautiful. They say to him, rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. After this, this miracle, a large crowd is amazed and they, they gather together at Solomon's porch to hear from Peter and John how this happened. How did you do this? Peter tells them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had glorified his servant, Jesus, whom they had denied and killed, but God had raised from the dead. It was through faith in his name that this lame man, born lame in his feet, was healed. After acknowledging their ignorance and their wicked act of killing the Prince of Life, Peter then says in 3.19, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. He then warns them of the judgment coming against those who continue to reject Jesus. And he reiterates God's promise of blessing and forgiveness to all who receive him and turn from their iniquities. As a result, we read in 4.4, Many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees are not thrilled about this. So they apprehend John and Peter, and they bring them in for questioning. In Peter's response to them, he repeats that the lame man was healed by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. They rejected Jesus, putting him to death, but God has caused him to become the chief cornerstone, 4, 10, and 11. Peter concludes in 4, 12, saying, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Throughout the next chapters, until the Jerusalem church's scattering in the beginning of chapter 8, The primitive church boldly and continuously proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to her rulers. God has made Jesus, whom you sinfully killed, both Lord and Christ. He is the Prince of Life. Repent, therefore, be baptized, and join the church. In his name you shall have salvation. That was their constant theme to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and her rulers. The church, no doubt, has changed, has grown, and has matured in many ways since Acts chapter 2. There's no denying that even the book of Acts, we see the church grow and change and mature. The Gentiles are brought in. But the church has never and shall never outgrow her duty to preach the gospel. For all of our modern gospel-centeredness, are we really as evangelical as we think? In all of, our, all of the gospel-centered marriage, child-rearing, counseling, and yes, even, I saw one yesterday, gospel-centered sports books, does the apostolic clarion call of the primitive church really clearly ring out? You have sinned against Jesus, and God has made him Lord. Deal with it. Repent, believe, get baptized, and join his church in submission and obedience to him. Is that what we are hearing in all of our gospel-centeredness? Have we really matured 
as much as we think we have? Do we really know better now how to deal with man and his sin? How to lead the spiritually lame to walk? How to confront rulers with their duties to Christ than did the primitive church? In all of our clarifications, in all of our sugarcoating, in all of our couching of our words in light of modern understanding of man's psychology, have we not lost something of the clear apostolic summons upon sinful men and women? Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or, in all of our development of Christian political theories, and our supposed growth and understanding of our duty as citizens to be subject to the governing authorities, Romans 13.1, have we not lost something of the bold apostolic declaration of the primitive church that we ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5.30, and of our duty to testify to God's deacon, the state, that God has exalted Jesus to his right hand to be prince and savior? Something to consider. Let us be sure that in all our growth and maturation, we can never outgrow our infant duty of evangelism. It is a sign of decline, not maturation, if the constant refrain of the church ever ceases to be, God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has glorified his servant Jesus and raised him from the dead, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. A second mark of the early church the primitive church had a high view of corporate worship, and specifically the, the work of God, the power of God in the corporate gathering and the means of grace. In verse 42 of our text, we read that the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. In Greek, you could even translate that as they were attached to them. The early Christians, in other words, had a high view of God's outward and ordinary means of communicating the benefits of Christ's mediation to believers, as the larger catechism puts it in question 154. I think this, no doubt, stands in stark contrast to our own day, by and large. Gathering together corporately on the Lord's Day, to sit under the reading and the preaching of the Word, to partake in the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and to offer up prayers to God was not a kind of optional or non-essential bonus to their life, which, if they got around to it, the early Christians would be sure to attend. No, they continued steadfastly in the corporate worship of God. Having been baptized into discipleship, they took their identities as disciples of Christ seriously. Christ had put his name upon them in baptism, and they had given their names to him in baptism. And blessed unity, their desire echoed their need, didn't it? They needed more of Christ, and they desired more of Christ. He must increase, and they must decrease. So they gave themselves to being instructed in his word, 
by the apostles, through which they were equipped for the work of ministry, and through which they, as the body of Christ, were edified. Ephesians 4.12. They knew that as just as Christ had spoken life to them by and through the apostles in their conversion, so too he would continue to speak the word of life to them. It was both their duty and their delight to sit under God's word, to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. It was the insistence of our Reformed forefathers that when a minister expounds the prophetic and apostolic words of Scripture, Christ is speaking to his people at that moment. He, the Lord, is instructing them in sound doctrine. How lowly our age views preaching in comparison, not even just to Acts chapter 2, but also to the Christians of the Reformation and post-Reformation. Instruction in apostolic doctrine is the means through which the Spirit of God enlightens, convinces, and humbles us. It's the means through which he draws us, he woos us, Samuel Rutherford says. He woos us to Christ and conforms us to his image through the word read and preached in the corporate assembly. Yet how easily we are distracted during it. How bored we sometimes find ourselves, and how apologetically and sheepishly our ministers sometimes undertake it. This should not be the case. If this is the case, this is again not a sign of maturation, it's a sign that we become mingled with worldliness. Steadfastly is how they attended the doctrine preached. The apostles' teaching, we certainly can learn from the primitive church, even if it's just to be reminded They also continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread, which I take, along with Calvin and and Henry, to be a reference to the Lord's Supper here, though you could take uh, other views, and some commentators do. Not only did they steadfastly hear Christ in his word, they fed upon Christ in the supper. In Christ was all of their life, all of their blessedness, and all of their salvation. It was not occasionally that these early Christians came to feast upon Christ in the supper after a season of preparatory consternation, once they felt that they had prepared themselves enough to come to Christ and feed upon him. No, the text tells us they continued steadfastly and thus constantly in feeding upon him. They came to Christ in the supper to be sanctified, or as the larger catechism puts it in question 168, to, quote, feed upon his body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace, end quote. It was from his study, actually, of the primitive church, his study of the primitive church that John Calvin came to his conviction that the church should celebrate the Eucharist, should have the Lord's Supper every time the word is preached, even if it's on the Lord's Day. So if it's on a Wednesday, if it's on a Tuesday, it's on a, every time the, the word is preached publicly, Calvin said that we should celebrate the Lord's Supper at that time. Yet how often do we feel any lack when we miss the supper, when we skip the supper, when we get sick? Are we, are, we, are we hurt by it? Do we sense loss and lack by not partaking in the supper? We have much to learn from the first Christians in this also. The supper was not a non-essential add-on to continuing steadfastly as disciples of Christ. 
It was as definitional to it as receiving the word and offering prayer. A high view of the church, especially its corporate gathering together to partake in the means of grace, was a mark of the primitive church. It was a mark of the primitive church. We see that here in our text. But not a mark that was intended to be unique to her. We too must have a high view of how God builds up his church, initiating, instructing, and infusing her with grace. A third mark that we could see. Primitive, the primitive church had a high view of the communion of saints. The communion of saints, or fellowship. The early Christians not only continued steadfastly in the means of grace, but also in fellowship, verse 42. There was a deep and true and abiding love and fondness amongst the Christians for each other. And this manifested in acts of charity for one another. We read, Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. That right there is a picture, a wonderful picture of the communion of saints, which the church must always have before it. Sadly, some see this passage, verses 44 and 45, uh, taking it with chapter 5, verses 32 through 37, as putting forward some kind of Christian communism. Some people look at both these passages go, look, here's a form of Christian communism. Or the, the early church, the primitive church, was communist, in which personal property didn't exist. They read these passages as prescriptive rather than descriptive thinking that it was by some kind of apostolic compulsion or demand that every Christian was to liquidate all his possessions and property and then give the proceeds to some kind of communal, communal depository. But we find no evidence for either an apostolic compulsion nor a biblical prescription for the releasing of all personal property here in the text. We just don't. Nowhere in the passage do we see the apostles commanding this, that everyone sell all that they have. Nor do we see any evidence that all the possessions of every Christian in the early church was sold and the proceeds shared with all. What we find is actually far more glorious than this. We find those who have been united to Jesus Christ being also united together in love, in one accord, verse 46, as one body, performing duties which are conducive to the mutual good of one another, both caring for the inward man and the outward man, as the Westminster Confession puts it, relieving each other in outward things according to each one's need and each one's ability. They had all things in common, we read. And by this, it means that in love, they didn't hold anything back which another had need of. They loved one another and they cared for one another's mutual needs. When their brother was in need, they did not shut their heart from him and say, depart in peace, be warm and filled. Rather, when one had this world's goods, he willingly shared them with his brother or sister who was naked and destitute of daily food. This, in other words, was not from compulsion or command, but from sincere love for one another. Let us not only see what they did for one another and providing for one another, taking care of one another's needs, but also what they did with one another. The 
early church, the primitive Christians, continued daily with one accord in the temple. They had sweet fellowship and spiritual duties together. Their fellowship was the best fellowship which can be shared, namely joint fellowship with God. Like the Apostle John talks about in 1 John 1.3. He says that, you're, that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. They gathered together for worship of their common Lord. And from house to house, they feasted with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. Matthew Henry uh, has this amazing quote that is just so beautiful. He says, quote, They brought the joy of God's table along with them to their own. End quote. They brought the joy of God's table, going together to public corporate worship, partaking the sacraments. They took that joy that they had, sitting under the means of grace, with them home to their own tables. Some in our day think that to be truly spiritual, one must forsake all human society and, and give oneself to a kind of permanent lifestyle of solitary, pious exercises. Just sit alone all day and pray and read good Puritan books and read the Bible and that's all you can do. This is just the opposite, though, of what we see here. As Matthew Henry points out, quote, when they withdrew from the perverse generation, remember, Peter calls them to, to leave, to, to go away from, to separate from the perverse generation. When they withdrew from the perverse generation, they did not turn hermits, end quote. They knew nothing of lone wolf Christianity. Me and Jesus and my Bible under a tree. They did not forsake the gathering of themselves together whether that was in the assembly, the corporate worship, or in their homes, that they might consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, Hebrews 10, 24. They spent time together with one another in each other's homes, sharing life, sharing laughter, sharing pain, sharing grief, and sharing meals. They shared the work of God in and through one another with one another. As Richard Baxter said, they loved God in his saints, and they had delightful converse with Christ in other believers. That's an amazing way to put it. When we share and receive the good things of fellowship with other believers, we are sharing and receiving Christ's blessings to, in, and through his church. Do we see that? Christians of all men are the most blessed and are to be both open-hearted and open-handed. We are to be those who share God's good, good gifts, which he has given to us with each other and indeed with all men, Hebrews 13, 16. Others think that true spiritual life in the church, what it looks like in a corporate setting, what it looks like in fellowship, looks like gatherings of, of somber, dour, gloomy, and pensive people whose words are few and are sure not to smile too widely over their meal for fear of turning food into an idol. But this isn't in the text either. Quite to the contrary. We see daily feasting in homes filled with gladness, 
filled with gratitude, prayers, and loud praises. Their daily lives were given to real cheerfulness. Matthew Henry says again, quote, None have such cause to be cheerful as good Christians have. It is a pity, but that they should always have hearts to be so, end quote. So he's saying as, as Christians, we are the ones, no, no one has more cause, no good reason to be cheerful than Christians. It's a pity that we don't always have the hearts to be cheerful. It is true that the kingdom of God doesn't consist in eating and drinking, but it does consist, among other things, in joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. And certainly, the daily house-to-house feasting with gladness and simplicity of heart, which the early Christians partook of, was filled with the joy of the Holy Ghost, with joy in and through the Holy Spirit. A mark of the primitive church was a robust, joyful, charitable, and festive communion with one another to the glory of God. And nor was this mark intended to be unique to her. We too are to share our lives with one another. In doing so, we are sharing the life that God has given us, the blessings he has given us. We are partaking in those blessings with one another. Lastly, let us look at how God blessed the early Christians. The primitive church was evangelical. She had a high view of God's activity in and through the church. And she had a high view of communion with one another. Likewise, God added to the church daily those who were being saved. He worked powerfully through her with many wonders and signs done through the apostles. And God caused fear to come upon every soul, giving the church favor with all people. The primitive church was faithful with what God had given her to do, and he blessed her for it. It was not church growth strategies. It was not the labor of her own hands which caused her to grow. God added to them, primarily through the apostles, yes, but also through the daily interactions and ministries of the laity. At Peter's first sermon, God adds 3,000 souls. At Solomon's porch, another 5,000. The number isn't given to us from the laity's work, but that must have been a great number since the Lord added to the church daily, and by the time we get to chapters 5 and 6, we read that believers were increasingly added to to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. God was working in and through till the whole city, the whole religious system was being overturned and won to Christ. So, I think this is Spurgeon put it this way, he says, if we will mind our business, mainly preaching, then God will mind his business, applying the preaching. We cannot imitate the extraordinary wonders and signs as we heard this morning, that were done by the apostles at that primitive state. Those were for the confirmation of the doctrine, the confirmation of the teaching. We can't imitate these extraordinary wonders and signs. But we can, should, and must live by the same power of the same Spirit which worked in and through the apostles. The same boldness 
the same love, same grace, patience, and faith, which they demonstrated in proclaiming the gospel to the lost, in teaching the church, and bearing witness before leaders and rulers, we too can and must have. Jesus promised that those who believe in him shall do greater works than he did, John 14, 12. And I don't think these works ended with the apostles. The Lord caused also, we see, reverence and fear, a fearful reverence to fall on the nation because of the church at that early stage. Since God was evidently in their midst, they couldn't deny it. They saw the way that these Christians had been transformed, the love they had, the charity they had for one another. The, the mighty wonders and signs done by the apostles. It was evident that God was in their midst. And because of this, they had favor with all people. The church has always been a blessing, always been a blessing to the nations and societies that it has entered. Jacob and Laban. Laban was blessed because of Jacob. Joseph and Pharaoh. Pharaoh and indeed all of Egypt was blessed because of Joseph. We see this time and again, not only in Scripture, but also throughout history. Where the church goes, where the church is faithful, she is a blessing to that nation. She's a blessing to that people. God's blessing follows the leaven of the gospel as it works its way through the whole lump. Let us live, therefore, now, today, as the church that has grown, has matured, has come 2,000 years past this point, let us live in such a way by our witness, by our dedication to the means of grace, by our prayers and our loving communion with one another, that all people see us as the blessing that we really are. Then they show us favor and are converted and praise God with us. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we are thankful for the grace and the mercy that was given to thy church in thy Son, Jesus Christ, being applied by thy Spirit. Oh God, we are thankful that we can read of these accounts, this early stage of our family history, O oh God, and see the mighty works, the wondrous things that were done by our forefathers in the faith. Lord God, we ask that we would imitate their faithfulness, we would imitate their love, we would imitate them in their evangelical fervor and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, in their boldness, O oh Lord, in their love and in their dedication. O oh God, let us be a people marked by love, that all people would know that we are truly thy disciples. And O oh God, turn and convert the nation that we are in, the city that we are in, our friends, our family, and indeed the whole world to Jesus Christ, who is the rightful Lord and King, ruler, prince, and Savior of all. It's in his name that we do pray. Amen.